Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School at the ANU and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. I'm here all on my own today, at least at the beginning of the show, because my fabulous co-host, Anna Greta Hunter, has metaphorically jumped the mic into the hot seat. And today, Anna Greta is going to be one of our panellists. Policy Forum Pod is based at the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. We offer an amazing array of degree programs and short courses, and we have some incredible researchers teaching those programs. You can visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study to find out what we have on offer. Last week, we had an incredible conversation with Peter Yu as part of this mini-series around the impacts of the cost of living and the inflation crisis. And as Peter pointed out in that conversation, for First Nations Australians, the crisis in terms of the cost of living is one that's ongoing. And Peter talks so powerfully about the pathways forward and the ways in which we can bring about genuine reconciliation based on the self-determination of First Nations peoples in this country. In today's episode, we'll continue to explore issues around the cost of living and the inflation crisis, and we'll be focusing on the health and well-being of Australians. And we'll be looking at those issues in the context of an already strained healthcare system. During the pandemic, one of the most visible and devastating issues were around our healthcare system, a healthcare system that was already under strain and was pushed to the brink. And we know today, as we move out of lockdowns, that COVID-19 remains an ongoing challenge to that very stretched healthcare system. But even before the pandemic, we faced serious issues around healthcare in Australia. Each year, Australians spend about $7 billion out of their own pockets on hospital medical services, on medications and on health care. In 2019, research from the Australia Institute found that health costs have more than doubled the rise in the Consumer Price Index, or the CPI, with a 24% increase in health costs compared with an 11% increase in prices across the board mainly caused by a 33% increase in the cost of medical and health services. So we know that prior to the current cost of living and inflation crisis, we already had serious problems in terms of the costs of healthcare outstripping people's incomes. In March of this year, the Grattan Institute found that nearly half a million Australians decided not to see a specialist because they could not afford it and even more, deferred or did not fill in a prescription because of the cost. So we see the very real impacts of cost on people's choices about their health care. But we also know from research around the social determinants of health that as the cost of living rises, as people are under increasing pressure, that those social determinants of health lead to a decline in people's physical and mental health. 
So what does all of this mean and what do we need to do about these challenges that we find ourselves facing? Today, to talk through these issues with us, we have two amazing guests. Of course, we have my regular podcast buddy, Anna Greta Hunter, who as a health practitioner and one of our finest thinkers about issues related to health and well-being is ideally placed to talk us through these issues. And alongside Anna Greta, we have Sharon Friel, who is a world leader in thinking around the social determinants of health. Anna Greta, people often hear from you when you're introducing yourself as the co-host each week, but you are in the position of being one of the panellists today, and, and I'm in the fabulous position of being able to ask you some questions about health and the healthcare system and wellbeing. But I wonder if you would like to begin by introducing yourself. Well, Sharon, it is fantastic to be with you as always, and it's very unusual being on the other side of the proverbial mic, but it's a real honour to be on this side of the mic today. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I've uh, done been working as a doctor now for about 20 or so years. I've worked in different parts of Australia, in major cities, in urban centres and in regional New South Wales, and I've worked across cardiology and general medicine. I've got a pretty deep interest in the social determinants of health and I've also been working quite a lot in climate change and the health impacts of the changing environment around us over the last few years. I've got interest in catastrophic existential risks and I'm, I've been part of the uh, College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University for the last couple of years and I've been uh, the Human Futures Fellow for the last two years with a great role there. So alongside the wonderful Anna Greta Hunter, we also have the wonderful Professor Sharon Friel, who has fairly regularly been on the pod in the past. Um, Sharon's from the School of Regulation and Governance, or REGNET, and the Menzies Centre for Health Policy here at ANU. Sharon, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Hello, I'm delighted to be joining both of you. This is uh, one of my favourite podcasts, so it's marvellous to be talking with you. Um, yeah, so my work looks at this intersection between society, inequality and health, and particularly um, this, you know, how climate change is really exacerbating all of the above. Uh, and I have a, a big interest in really sort of questions of power, public policy and governance, you know, who's who in the zoo, who's at the table, who's not at the table, uh, what does that mean for what issues get paid attention to or not, uh, and how all of that plays out for uh, health inequities. And we, yeah, we just, uh, I'll do a, a a plug for the, the upcoming launch of uh, the Planetary Health Equity Hothouse, uh, which is a, a new initiative that I'm heading up, really bringing all of these issues together over the next few years. So marvellous if, uh, if the listeners are interested to join us on the 2nd of August. I, I'm really looking forward to hearing that lecture, I know, and, and if, if for nothing else, the name of this group is just fantastic. I love the idea of being part of a hothouse, Sharon, for you. It's going to be great. <laughs> and I'm just going to add, Sharon says this this new initiative that we're starting up, this is part of Sharon's um, Australian Laureate Fellowship. This is a very big deal. These are fellowships for our most outstanding researchers in Australia. So um, Sharon is one of those fellows and this project is part of that. So congratulations, Sharon. And yeah, like Anna Greta, I'm really looking forward to, to the launch and to what this project provides to us in our understanding of, of health and health governance. Yeah, thanks, Sharon and, and Anna Greta. Yeah, it's... Um yeah, very exciting. And I, I, I think, you know, as we'll discuss over the next little uh, while in this episode, the some of these underlying environmental pressures of inequality, all so related to public policy and really having profound effects on people's physical and mental health and well-being. 
Sharon, we'll, we'll leave a link um, in the show notes to today's episode to the launch um, that's on the 2nd of August. But I think that's a really good place for us to start this conversation today. Um, and as we've said, Sharon, a lot of your work is focused on the social determinants of health. For those who might not know what we mean when we talk about the social determinants of health, can you talk us through that and why that matters so much for health and wellbeing? Yeah, so I, I imagine a number of people listening to the, the podcast when we talk about health will automatically think about disease, they'll automatically think about going to their GP, they'll automatically think about the health system, and they're all vitally, vitally important for our health and well-being. And there are other factors at play that, that keep us well and that make us sick, and these relate to the social uh, determinants of health or the conditions, the everyday living conditions. So our um, matters of our working conditions, the physical environment in which we, we live, our education opportunities and quality of education, uh, the, yeah, the, the physical, the built environment that we're living in, our, the amount of money that we have in our pockets, so sort of societal level factors that affect our everyday lives. These really matter uh, for our physical and our mental health. They, they affect our material resource, they affect the sense of control that we have over our lives. And these things get in into our brains and under our skin and make us feel good or bad. I think, you know, as, as you say, Sharon, when we think about health, we do generally think about disease. At the moment, we think about COVID-19. But when you describe that, I think for, for all of us, we understand deeply the way in which those environmental factors, the context of our lives impacts so much on our health and our well-being and how we feel about ourselves, the energy that we have to engage in the world around us. But Anna Greta, I, I wanted to ask you how these factors start to play out in practice. How do, do you see those social determinants of health impacting on people's physical health, on, on the nature of diseases and, and indeed on hospital, administra uh, hospital ad admissions? It, it's a key factor in the health and well-being of our community. And it's really interesting as a medical practitioner that quite a lot of people make a realisation that at the end of medical school you go out and start working with people more regularly, in, perhaps in a hospital environment, in general practice or in, in private practice environments. And the more time you spend looking after people and, and, and helping them with their health challenges, the more you realise that the social determinants of health drive so much of the illness that we experience in our health uh, and, and it can radically change our life expectancy. There's a model that I use when I'm trying to explain this or teach this uh, to, to my medical students or to, to junior doctors and it's a model that I think is helpful when we're thinking a lot about the health data that we have in practice where we do tend to focus, as we've all mentioned, on the diseases, the, the diagnosis of diabetes or the, the heart disease and the plaque inside the arteries or the, heart, the lung disease, the cancers, the sorts of conditions that have a label and that often have a deeply biological basis that so we can find things on a cellular level or find things on an anatomical level, perhaps with some sort of scan. And that's the biological basis of our health and well-being. But what sorts of factors contribute to the development of disease lie often outside the biology of that particular cell? Why, why have we developed that cancer? Why have we got heart disease? Why have we developed atrial fibrillation? Because not just of the things that are going inside, on, inside our body on a biological basis, but because of the broader context in which we live. And so a really important layer around the biology of our individual health and well-being are these social uh, factors, the social determinants of health. And then, of course, outside that is the environmental issues that can impact on our health and well-being. The air that we breathe, for example, something that many of us learnt about through the Black Summer experience, the water and the food, which, again, we're really beginning to understand in the last couple of years with the climate change challenges that we're facing even today, the way in which these things will impact on our health and well-being. 
in practice, in terms of data, we know that social determinants drive both your disability-free life expectancy, so how long you'll be well before you start to face chronic diseases that will then impact on your quality of life uh, going forward, and also impact on your life expectancy. And there's remarkable work that's been done around the world, and Sharon's been a big part of, that shows significant uh, differences in both disability-free life expectancy and life expectancy that's driven not by factors of biology, but by these social factors, things like education, things like socioeconomics and geography. And of course, we see that playing out very powerfully in Australia um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and when we see that really shocking differential in, in life expectancy. And, and Sharon, one of the, the pieces of work, I guess, that has really influenced me is um, Anne Case and Angus Deaton's work around deaths of despair, um, to the point that recently um, over dinner with some friends, we were talking about inequality and, and my son sort of jumped in and said, could we have this conversation without talking about Angus Deaton's deaths of despair for just once? Um, so I talk about this a lot, but Sharon, I, I wonder if if you could just talk us through a little bit what what, how the social determinants of health impact on life expectancy and, and what this this idea of deaths of despair means. Yeah, it's a very, very powerful uh, piece of work uh, that's been recorded. That was in the US, the demonstration in the US uh, of this uh, stagnation and falling of uh, life expectancy in uh communities where things had been good uh, and that it was now actually starting to uh, reverse and that's we're observing that uh, around the world and so there's a number of factors at play there in communities where there has been a profound loss of opportunity uh, that's been sort of chipped away over time so a loss of opportunity in terms of education, in terms of employment opportunities, in terms of you know, seeing a, a positive pathway forward for a flourishing life. When that starts to not be possible or uh, you, you might have thought, yeah, okay, in fact, there are ways forward in life and uh, that's... You, that's marvellous and uh, things are going well and that's where we've seen uh, uh, increases in life expectancy and some of the measures that Anna Greta was speaking about. When that starts to change, then there's a poverty of expectation. There's a loss of hope for the future. And so there's been a diversion to ways of living and ways of being that have not been good for health uh, and well-being and so starting to reduce uh, life expectancy. So some of the, the mental health or the mental illness uh, levels really start to, to grow in the, those communities. And it's really a, a kind of a, a confluence of these factors uh, layering on top of each other. And so you start to see in communities kind of uh, the, the higher working class communities, things start to move backwards. In some of the middle class communities where you know, they absolutely thought there was a positive uh, um, employment livelihood uh, ahead for them. When that starts to get clawed back, we're seeing the decreases in life expectancy kick in, and that's you know, that's a, a major public policy issue because there has been massive underinvestment in those communities in the US and elsewhere around the world. There has been massive underinvestment in. Uh, working opportunities in educational opportunities, a massive underinvestment in community infrastructure. So a real a real um, need for very uh, intense 
progressive public policy intervention. And that didn't happen in the US, which is why we start to see these deaths of despair play out, levels of suicide, levels of alcohol abuse, levels of uh, drug uh, misuse, uh, quite profound among communities that just weren't, in inverted commas, supposed to be behaving like that. There is a, quite an interesting example. Uh, called, I think it's sometimes referred to as the Cuban paradox, uh, when there was extraordinary financial stress in Cuba and uh, embargoes in place, so that there was very little oil that came into the country, and there was a, a, a tremendous difficulty with using vehicles. So there was very little cars being used. People were walking a lot. They weren't importing food, um, and there was a lot of uh, of gardening that took place in the local environment in order to prevent starvation. Physical activity increased and nutrition was largely plant-based on the basis of what was available locally. Uh, And it's a paradox because we saw a significant decline in cardiovascular mortality in quite a short period of time, focusing on on those indices of both physical activity and nutrition. Um, And it might be an interesting uh, thing to bear in mind that that when we're talking about the social determinants of health, uh, some of those fundamental things like the food that we have access to, the time that we have to take take care of ourselves, the capacity to, to engage in physical activity, that those things are tremendously important in mitigating some of the impacts of poverty. And I think, I mean, that's a, a beautiful example, uh, Anna Greta from Cuba, uh, and, and a demonstration of, I don't know that we, we would necessarily uh, be advocating a, a Cuban model to, to public policy, but what it does uh, highlight in the same way that Costa Rica and Sri Lanka uh, did previously was major, major investment in female education across these different countries, a major investment in, uh, well, in education more broadly, that was such, as Anna Greta has just said, such a, an important social uh, buffer with some of these uh, other uh, quite profound and quite acute uh, impacts uh, in society. So I'm, I'm not recommending a Cuban model, but it, it's just illustrative of some of the um, underlying supportive policy interventions. And perhaps not the Cuban model, but the more walking and the healthier eating and the you know the the, the shift in in the way we live our lives is the important message there. But I'm wondering, as I hear both of you talk about both, um, you know, Anna Greta, that that really fascinating example of of the Cuban paradox, but also you know Deaton's and and Case's ideas of of the deaths of despair, you know, in in contexts where the social determinants of health are very, very poor. We often also see what we might call atomization, where people's connections with one another also start to be eroded away and people feel increasingly isolated. So the despair is about them as an individual, but also about the lack of connectedness, you know, perhaps what we might call a lack of social capital or, or social, social connectedness and inclusion. I wonder if either of you would like to talk on that kind of collective element of the social determinants of health and how much human relationships and human interaction kind of feed into to the social determinants of health. So we, we've got all sorts of interesting information and understanding, I think, of the key importance of human connection. And, and look, I'm, I'm instantly thinking about that report again that Millie Rooney and Australia Remade put on, on the public good, the report that's asking us what we might like to do and what, what we'd like to achieve with our lives, what sorts of things give meaning and satisfaction. And, and obviously the foundation, the access to education, access to good quality housing, access to the internet, access to to nature was a fundamental basis. But those three C's that that Millie and her team articulated of care, connection and contribution being things that so many of us in our life really look for. And we know from research that things like volunteering improves both your quality of life and, and may even have an advantage to your life expectancy, can improve social engagement, can have beneficial effects not just on your mental health and well-being, but on your physical health and well-being, measuring things like 
blood pressure, exercise tolerance, heart rate. So there's a tremendous relationship between our social lives as humans and our physical lives as individuals. Yeah, and, and I, I think I, mean, I think an important uh, point in, in in the context of sort of relations and relationships within society is remembering that more equal societies have greater uh, social capital. And so I think it's difficult to tease apart and thinking from a a policy perspective how those human interactions and social connectedness building community resilience is vitally important. But it's even more powerful when you've actually got a kind of a structural uh, intervention or um, we pay attention to the structural problems in society that create inequality, for example. And so not to separate them apart, but recognise how actually really we could amplify the power of relations uh, between us uh, if we were to address some of the underlying structural uh, inequities. And some of the work by Wilkinson and Pickett has demonstrated that, that this relative inequality in society is incredibly harmful. So not just the you know, there are groups in society who don't have uh, the same material resources or the same opportunities, but it's that relativity uh, which really und- also undermines some of these human interactions and connectedness that uh, yourself and Anna Greta are speaking about. Sharon, I think that's so important. And I think it's 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 fascinating to look at the discourse around resilience. You know, you talked about the importance of, of, of building community resilience, but then highlighted how it's also critical that we look at the the structural drivers or the policy failures that are leading to the problems that communities are facing. And I think sometimes we, or sometimes there is a tendency to put the burden of finding solutions or the burden of coping onto communities whose well-being and um, the, the the well-being of, of those people who live within in particularly marginalised or disadvantaged communities, the way in which their well-being is is actively undermined by particular policy choices or particular approaches of government, um, and so I think you know highlighting that that link between structural factors and people's welfare and connectedness and social inclusion is so fundamentally important. Yeah, and it, it does worry me when I, I see or you know you listen to the news and there's yeah that real um, spotlight on the local community and the local community sort of doing it for themselves and there are incredible uh, community activities that are happening all across the country. But it's an absolute failure of government to actually address some of those underlying conditions that make those communities incredibly vulnerable in the first place. And just leaving it to those communities to have to you know, pick themselves up by their bootstraps and carry on and, and make everything well is you know, it, it, it's just letting, letting government off the hook, basically, for the inactions and the failures uh, that they've put in place to begin with. There's a lot more to say about these issues, but I think we'll take just a, a short break now and then we will come back and continue this conversation and also start to think about the way in which the current crisis that we're facing with around rising costs of living is impacting on people's health and particularly on these issues that we've been talking about around the social determinants of health. So listeners, please don't go away. We will be back with Sharon Friel and Anna Greta Hunter in just a minute. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Anna Greta Hunter and Sharon Friel, and we've been talking about the social determinants of health. And I wanted to turn to to begin to think about the way in which the current crisis we're seeing around uh, the the spiraling cost of living is impacting on people's health. But before we get to that. Um, Sharon, I, I wanted to ask you about some work that you have been doing through the Menzies Centre for Health Governance, um, where you've developed a health equity report card. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you found in that recent work that you've done in in reporting on the the level of equity of, of level of health equity in Australia? Because we face some fairly serious challenges before we hit this current crisis. So can you just talk us through what you found? Yeah, so the the Health Equity Report Card was particularly looking at the the government's policy responses to COVID-19 and particularly the economic responses to COVID-19 because as we've been speaking about already, that matters for health and health inequities. Um, And you know, I think many people across the country were incredibly impressed by the the response. You know, sort of overnight, we were seeing increases in levels of income support. We were seeing support for businesses to keep people in jobs, uh, and both of those uh, policy responses. You know, they weren't done from a health perspective, but they had the potential to be very, very protective uh, of health. And wouldn't it have been fantastic if they stayed in place? Uh, because before the pandemic, Australia, like many other uh, high-income countries across the world, has been increasing, has had been and continues to be increasing in levels of precarious employment. So the zero-hour contracts, the financial instability, low levels of pay uh, associated with these types of work, which is much more common among uh, already socially disadvantaged groups. We had levels of income support that were below uh, a decent standard of living. And when that got increased uh, during uh, COVID, people were reporting that actually they could now eat healthily, they could now uh, afford their rent. So it was really uh, revealing in terms of what could be done if government wanted to intervene, and that was to be applauded. But it was against a backdrop of incredible uh, growing inequality in Australia around uh, working conditions around levels of income, around housing. Uh, you know, we have the shocking housing crisis in Australia, and uh, there was also the the issue around uh, early uh, early childcare and uh, early education. So we are a country that has become more unequal, and when something like COVID nineteen comes along, or the climate change crisis comes along, uh, it just absolutely exacerbates those inequities unless there's very positive and progressive uh, government intervention, as we saw with some of those examples. And so we do have um, some policy formulas that have been tested through that rather terrible natural experiment of of COVID-19 to be able to see what, what works to really improve people's standards of living. And we now find ourselves with something of a of a perfect storm, where we we still are feeling the impacts of COVID nineteen very deeply. We have 
an environmental and climate crisis that's ongoing. We're seeing more flooding as we're across um, Eastern Australia as we're recording this episode. And we also have those dramatic increase, increases in the cost of living. Anna Greta, when you think across those three challenges that we're seeing, what do you anticipate we're, we're going to see in terms of people's health and wellbeing as a direct consequence? It's certainly going to be a challenging time, I think, for health and wellbeing. And, and I, the combination of the disruption to healthcare services and healthcare access over the two years of the pandemic, particularly through periods of lockdown, uh, I think we're increasingly seeing this in the healthcare sector uh, of some of the, the routine things that we might do, checking someone's blood pressure, having a face-to-face consultation with a physical examination. Those things haven't been as easy to access for very good reason in the last two years of the pandemic. And so we do have a population of people where healthcare attention is probably uh, needed more than usual. And in that population of people, we know that those who are more likely to suffer from both disease and from the ill effects of those disease, to do, to do less well out of the diseases, are those who are in situations of economic precarity. Uh, and we already see people putting off doctor's appointments or putting off having tests done because of the financial costs involved. We see people making decisions about medication on the basis of, of the need to put resources into other places. And this was present before the pandemic. Uh, it became less of an issue. It, it was a quite remarkable period when we were giving adequate social security to people in precarious positions. And I had a number of anecdotal experiences with that in my clinical practice of, of watching the health and well-being of a number of patients who'd lived in difficult positions for very long times really flourish with a small amount more financial resource. So able to access medication, able to access good quality food, the, the dignity of time and the extraordinary benefits to health and well-being being that we can give by giving people a, a dignified wage to, to maintain their life. Um, and again, the health impacts that we see as that was taken away. Uh, and we're going into a situation where I have patients who are already making decisions about whether they can travel to see a doctor on the basis of the current price of fuel. So there are a whole series of different challenges in front of us, the costs of various fruits and vegetables, the costs of petrol, uh, the, the increasing rise of inflation and the cost of living generally will, will definitely contribute to, to impacts on health and well-being in our population more broadly. And then compounding that access to acute care services will be will become problematic uh, as some of the avoidance strategies or the preventative care that's provided, particularly in primary practice, will be will, will become more difficult. And then the, we know that that increases the likelihood of hospitalisation. So it, it's not not an optimistic view that I'm painting at this point in time. But I also think we've got an opportunity, and in fact, we touched on it a little bit with Warwick McKibben when we talked about uh, the Reserve Bank and the role of interest rate rises and on the government policy uh, approach to inflation, that we have options in terms of the public policy approach that we take into the, particularly the economics of now and the way that we can care for each other and the way that we prioritise the caring for each other. And the opportunities that we have in front of us to do that, I think, have a significant potential benefit for health and well-being, decreasing morbidity, illness and, and, and poor health and decreasing, uh, improving life expectancy. So these are policy choices that we can make at a federal government level and we have an opportunity to do something meaningful in the current environment. Anna Greta, uh, just, just to continue on from that, amongst those policy choices are the way we think about the healthcare system itself. And we have seen a lot of discussion in the media, um, a lot of political and public discourse around the challenges that the healthcare system is facing. We hear about um, a stretched hospital system. We hear about a shortage of general practitioners in, in much of the country. I'd love to hear your assessment of, of some of those issues around the healthcare system and the, the kinds of policy choices that might be before us um, in terms of that system. 
Sharon, I think it would occupy at least a whole podcast on its own, just thinking about the the complexity of our healthcare sector uh, from primary care to the hospital environment and the different layers of hospitals, different layers of healthcare providers across doctors, allied health professionals, nurses, etc. Um, so so that the system is complex. The current system is in crisis. Many people recognise that there are significant challenges to accessing uh, healthcare, uh, primary care, uh, ongoing supportive care, hospitalisation, accessing tests, accessing uh, appropriate resources is really challenging. It was challenging before COVID. It's become more challenging during the pandemic and it is still a major challenge right now. Uh, and, and I think we'll probably do that justice by speaking about it on its own at some point. But one of the factors that I, I think comes from this conversation and listening to the wise words of Sharon uh, and the work that she's done looking at the dynamic between our social determinants of health and our health and well-being is that it, as we have a population that is struggling, we're struggling, we know that there's good good research that shows that, that mental health concerns are common in our community at the moment, that, that potentially a large number of us, maybe one in four, one in five of us have had at least moments or, or significant periods in the last few years where our mental health has not been as good as it has been previously. The Institute of Health and Welfare uh, released a report just recently this week saying that we're not feeling as happy or as optimistic as we have been previously. So we we know this in our lives. I think relying on our acute care health sector to fix that problem won't end well for us as a community. And it's an opportunity for us to, to, to reimagine how we can care for each other in a way that decreases those those health impacts of, of the social determinants of health. Um, and so, so I think some of these crises do have uh, extraordinary opportunities within them to reframe I have a, a game I play sometimes when I'm teaching students in, in who, are, who are looking at health systems and in, and in public health, of imagining a world where everyone, where we have the maximum health and well-being, and those worlds where we're really healthy, where where we don't have illness and disease, the need for the healthcare sector is much less. Uh, and in those environments, we have got all of these factors around both the environmental and the social determinants of health, the cultural factors that play into that uh, are, are all addressed in, in any form of utopia that can be imagined. And I think that's part of how we have to contend with the current healthcare crisis is thinking much more holistically about health and well, how health and well-being is created in our community and what levers we have outside an overstretched healthcare sector to improve population health. Sharon, when we're thinking about these issues and, and particularly the ways in which the kinds of social and economic inequalities that, that you've mapped out, the precarious work, uh, the, the lack of a, of, of a livable income, impact on people's health and, and well-being. One way of, of responding to that that you've spoken about is the concept of a social vaccine. Can you talk us through what you mean by a social vaccine and how that might help us to think differently um, in how we, we respond, not just to, to health inequity, but to broader social inequities? Yeah, the, so the social vaccine really is just a metaphor for everything that we've been speaking about uh, on the, the podcast. It's pointing to the fact that there are uh, societal level factors that are affecting health and health inequities and that these societal level factors are structuring society in a very uh, unequal way, which is exacerbating the, the health inequities. So the sorts of issues you know, around the um, employment, uh, the livable income, uh, housing, these you know, the range of, of policy, public policy domains would all be part of uh, this social vaccine and that it would be administered, as we do, um, as we've been thinking about with the, this, uh, the biomedical uh, vaccine, you know, thinking about how that's administered based on principles of equity, of social justice, uh, from a lens of environmental sustainability as well, and in a, uh, a democratic and inclusive uh, 
uh, manner. So that's really uh, all. It's just a shorthand way of summarising what we've been speaking about. And if I can sort of connect it to uh, what Anna Greta was saying uh, with the healthcare system and what she had strongly highlighted around these are policy choices that get made. If if these policy choices based on your know, principles of a social vaccine, principles of social justice, of sustainability and concern for health in a much wider sense, if that doesn't happen, we are going to have a tsunami of health inequalities in Australia and the deaths of despair that we started the programme speaking about will be rife in Australia. And that's going to feed back into that healthcare system that Anna Greta was uh, speaking about, because the healthcare system will have to mop up uh, that tsunami of poor health and health inequities and of those deaths of despair. And so it's going to absolutely blow the budget. Uh, so if if people are listening and they don't really care about any of these issues from a, a social justice or so uh, a social model of health, if you care about the dollars, then recognising that if we don't do something about these sorts of issues, the scale of health impact is going to absorb not just the health sector budget, but it's going to absolutely eat into the wider uh, budget. So it's there's an economic imperative to address these issues as well. I guess as part of that, that economic imperative, there's also the 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 spending on um, social welfare and on benefits. And of course, when people are in despair, when they're unable to cope, they're also far less able to engage in paid employment to contribute productively to the economy. And so we see a magnification of, of these challenges. And Anna Greta, as, as Sharon was talking, I was thinking particularly about the the mental health impacts of what we're seeing around the increase of of cost of living, the housing crisis, but alongside that, this existential threat that we see from climate change. Do we need to take the same approach around mental health by thinking about those underlying causal factors rather than, you know, parking the ambulance at the, the bottom of the cliff and picking people up once they've fallen? Oh, look, I, I think actually just stopping and thinking a little bit about that analogy you've given, okay, that that in our healthcare sector as it stands, the ambulance is at the bottom of the cliff. It's after things have started to go wrong and it's often at a point where we can't reverse uh, the diagnosis and we, we can't fix or cure. Uh, the opportunity at the top of the cliff is is very much in the social determinants of health and in the environment in which we live. You mentioned climate change and the existential threat around climate change, the mental health impacts of climate change. Uh, And we know that this is a growing concern in our community uh, across the the age groups and particularly for, for a number of young people, for a proportion of our younger population. And so what do we know about the research on how to address that very real and very intelligent existential concern about what the future might look like? We we know that engagement and participation, that care, contribution and connection framework actually makes a difference to the mental health and wellbeing as we contend with serious threats. Uh, I've been in the last couple of of episodes of this podcast, I've talked about optimism in light of the federal election. I think in climate change, just simply being able to talk about the issues, examine in a pragmatic way what sorts of challenges that we have ahead, that actually makes a difference to our mental health and how we might contend, how we might work together moving forward. Sharon, in in your work, you've talked about, and we've talked about previously on on the pod with you, this idea of of the consumptogenic society where people often feel their their well-being, including their their mental health well-being, but their their well-being, their position in society is, is very closely linked to the kinds of things that we can buy, that we can consume. And of course, as we find ourselves in an economic crisis with rising costs of living, people having far less disposable income, you know, so much of people's income simply being spent on rent, I, I'm really curious to see how you 
think this might play out in terms of the consumptogenic society? Do you think this might be a moment in time when we be, can begin to to walk backwards from that real focus on consumerism that we 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 see shaping our lives to thinking differently about the things that really matter? Or do you think that perhaps the nature of the consumptogenic society is is so deep that it's going to contribute to the the kinds of, of despair of, of mental health, lack of well-being that that we've been talking about? So I do think there is a real opportunity to transform that uh, cons- well, the consumptogenic system, uh, not just this society. Um, but what it will mean is, and, and we, so we've seen through COVID, so people are flying less, people are, um, some people were out being much more physically active rather than driving around and people are arguing or suggesting that with increasing fuel prices, that'll be a sort of a circuit breaker for people using um, that type of transport. And maybe they'll see more of a shift to electric vehicles and public transport. And that's fine, but it's a tiny drop in the ocean. So the opportunity, I think, for the transformation of this system right now is, again, at the structural level. So a resetting of the institutions, a resetting of the policy uh, approaches, a resetting of the commercial activities, all of which have historically driven hyper-consumerism. You know, people don't just kind of sit there thinking, yeah, I want to eat that, I want to buy more, I want to do this, I want to do that. That's been structured. Uh, Of course, people have agency in that, but it's been structured. So I think the moment is actually about the the resetting of the structures that drive hyper-consumerism. And so the discussion that's going uh, on, you know, the the energy transition, the major shift uh, institutionally and commercially towards um, uh, renewables, that's that's, uh, so important. That's where our energy, I think, has to be uh, focused rather than, you know, there's an opportunity to... um, my fear is the shift will become uh, very individual responsibility uh, oriented um, where I think it has to be at the, the structural level. It's a little like the conversation that we had on community resilience, isn't it? And yes, exactly. exactly. Into those underlying drivers. Yeah, yeah. Anna Greta, did you want to come in at all on, on that particular issue? I know you've done a, a lot of work on the kinds of transformations that we need to, to be thinking about. No, I just, I remember when I first heard Sharon talking about the consumptogenic system and I know how reading her book that I've given to a few people over the years um, really changed how I think about these issues. It's our conversation with Sophie Lewis and Joe Clay last year on Scope 3 Emissions. It's around consumption. We, we don't address carbon pollution without looking at our consumption habits across our society, the things that we buy, the things that we build, the things that we use, and that those, that consumption of stuff sometimes makes a beneficial impact on our health and well-being, but quite often it drives some of the chronic health conditions that many of us are contending with. Um, And so there's a tremendous advantage for win-win at looking at consumption, both for planetary health and for human health. Uh, And if you need to know more about that, you should read Sharon's book as the, the, the major reference on the issue. We, we will also put a link to Sharon's book in, um, in the show notes. The, the show notes will be a reference to Sharon Field at the moment. <laughs> That's a, a lovely but shameless plug. Thank you, Anna Greta. <laughs> um, we, we are going to, to begin to, to draw this, this conversation to a close. But, um, Sharon, before we, we start to wind up, there was one issue that I wanted to get your thoughts on, and we've we've talked a little today about the the cost of living crisis that we are currently experiencing, but of course Australia is also experiencing or approaching a debt crisis. We have an enormous deficit. Um, part of that is is related to um, to the responses to COVID nineteen, but also to to the nature of of government spending over a number of years. 
when we look to other parts of the world, we sometimes see responses from government, and we've seen them here in Australia, that are driven by austerity. And Sharon, I'd really love to get your thoughts on the way in which the austerity approach in the UK impacted on people's lives, on the social determinants of health, and what we can learn by looking at the the experiences of, of the UK um, in putting austerity measures in place. Well, to quote uh, an academic colleague, David Stuckler, austerity kills. And the beautiful analysis that David Stuckler and colleagues have done uh, back uh, when those austerity measures were being put in place before COVID, um, really illustrating in countries like uh, the UK where austerity uh, was really, really put uh, in place very powerfully, then things went horribly, horribly wrong for society uh, that we started to see increases in these deaths of despair that we're speaking about, that we started to see a lowering of life expectancy. We started to see just absolutely inadequate access to social and health services. Whereas in countries that uh, invested at times when they were in debt, um, but that actually uh, invested into society. Countries like Iceland, for example, who I just can't remember the the level of debt that they were in. It was phenomenal. Um, but what they saw was an increase in economic productivity, an increase in population levels of satisfaction, and an increase in access to uh, health and social services. So if we're to learn anything about austerity uh, from the UK or anywhere else in the world is it kills. I think that is an incredibly powerful message, Sharon. Um, we we are going to need to draw this conversation to a close, but um, we, we like to finish these conversations by asking the one piece of advice that you'd give to policymakers. And Anna Greta, you have often asked this question of our guests. So my turn to ask you today, when we're thinking about health, particularly the social determinants of health, in the context that we are currently in, where we see the ongoing impacts of COVID, we see the challenges of of a climate crisis, but we also see this deep crisis around the cost of living. What is the one piece of advice you would give to policymakers, Anna Greta, um, in ensuring that that we do try to protect people's health and well-being? Sharon, I think we should value caring. Nice, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Any more you'd like to add, Anna Greta? I think that that in itself is powerful. So if we if we put caring at the centre of our policies, every policy, then we're caring for both the natural environment around us and the people within it. Uh, we would be respectful of our native environment. We would have deep respect and appreciation of our First Nations wisdom. We would be very careful with environmental pollution and we would be uh, creating a world where we are looking after each other, where we have time and resources to live meaningful and dignified lives. And if that's the primary driver of government and we make decisions with that as the goal, I do think that that is uh, an effective strategy. It's beautiful, Anna Greta, and I, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to to tease out our hashtag a little bit, and you, and you did that so fabulously. Um, Sharon, in, in winding up, what would your one piece of advice be? Um, I would like our policy people in, in power to change the policy settings that uh, incentivize uh, wealth accumulation to actually disincentivize wealth accumulation and that uh, using uh, the, the policy energy to ensure uh, a livable income for everybody. Value care, not accumulation, I think is the, the summary <laughs> from that. <laughs> Thank you both very much. This has been a fantastic conversation. Sharon, always such a privilege to talk to you. Anna Greta, wonderful to be able to ask some questions of you and to, to hear your expertise and wisdom. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much for your interviewing. Bye. Thank you. Real pleasure. 
What an amazing conversation that was. I don't have Anna Greta sitting beside me today to reflect on the podcast, so I'll keep my comments to a minimum. But some of those issues that both Sharon and Anna Greta raised, I think are going to stay with me for a long time as I think about how we not just tweak at the edges of systems that are failing us, but how we think deeply about serious transformation. That final message from Anna Greta and Sharon around valuing care rather than accumulation is perhaps the most powerful message that we can take forward. Please do join us again next week when we will continue to look at some of the impacts of the cost of living and inflation crisis that's facing Australia and Australians at the moment. Both Anna Greta and I are, are really looking forward to continuing these fundamentally important conversations. This podcast is produced by policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've talked about today in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Do reach out and leave a review. We love to get your feedback and feel free to get in touch with us via Twitter, Facebook or email. We love to hear our listeners' thoughts on each and every episode. We love to hear your thoughts on what you'd like to hear us talking about. So thank you for listening. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.